Well, good morning. If you haven't already, um, take your Bible and turn to that passage that uh, Carrie just read from Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, we're going to be continuing our study through Ephesians. Um, last week, Daniel um, preached on the first half of chapter 2. We talked about um, kind of what Christ has done for us, the idea that we were dead in our, our, our trespasses, our sins. We were dead to Christ, and yet Christ came and made us alive in him through his sacrifice, which is a gift of grace, um, meaning there's nothing that we did to accomplish our salvation, but Jesus Christ himself came and rescued us. And today we're talking, this is where Paul kind of naturally transitions and talking about, okay, so you've been rescued, you've been saved by grace, you are now made alive in Christ, now what? What does that mean? And as he transitions this topic, it's interesting to note that in today's passage, we're going to be talking about, he's talking about what that means for us corporately. I think one of the hardest things, um, I think, for us today is to kind of give up our individual mindset because our culture just overwhelms us with this idea of um, individualism, that it's all about you, that you're the most important thing. I mean, and, and it's not just like the message that culture sends. It's just everything about our lives now is so individualistic. Like, I mean, you think a few hundred years ago when you were living in a town, like you were dependent on other people to survive, okay? Each person had different trades or different things and like whether you were dependent on a farmer because, or you were dependent on a doctor, like all these different things. And in today's world, it's a lot easier to kind of survive and live without having to interact with a lot of people, if you think about it. Like, it is now possible with technology, other than going to a job, which you may or may not interact with a lot of people in your job, other than going to a job and earn some money, you could almost get by without having to talk or meet or interact with anybody in life. You can go to a job, get some money, go home. You can now order your food to be delivered to you. The only real person you really have to interact with is delivery people. And even them are going, and give, give another 10 or 15 years the way technology is going, they're going to be obsolete. All right? Like drones are going to be flying you all your food and everything that you need. Like that's, that's coming. We don't really need people anymore. So like it's, so that's kind of like just a natural progression in our minds. We just, it tends to just end up being a very individualized society. We're the most important thing. That's why you have now a culture that promotes like a, a, a postmodern mindset of like, that's why, you know, the idea of, of, you know, me and Micah can be totally on different ends of the spectrum as far as our beliefs. I could believe one thing and he could believe something total opposite. And yet the expectation is for me to look at Micah and be like, you're right, man, because that's right for you even though I totally disagree with it. Like the expectation is that we're, our individual beliefs are our own and we're right to ourselves and that's all that matters. It doesn't matter if, we, if someone else has a different belief because that's their belief. That's good for them. We're an individualized society and yet we have scripture here in this passage, throughout the Bible. The majority of the New Testament was written to churches. It was written to a group of people that we're meant to read it together, that we're meant to be shaped together by the scriptures. When we approach scripture even, my fear is that we end up looking at scripture and we end up starting to filter it through an individual lens 
we read a passage of scripture and the first question we want to get to or the big question that we want to arrive at is, so what does this mean for me? What does this mean as far as what I need to start doing? What does this mean that for as far as how I need to live? What is this trying to teach me? When we read a passage of scripture, do we understand that the Bible is not about me? Okay, when we read scripture, when we see the whole lens of scripture, how do we see it? And like, this is like, honestly, like we're just naturally, I think it just naturally gets shaped in my mind. At least for me, it was this way. Like it was naturally shaped in my mind that scripture was all like kind of like this. You have the Old Testament stories and the Old Testament stories were there to kind of teach me some principles about how I should live or not. Like there's some examples in the Bible, like I should be a little bit like David in this story or like Moses or whether or whoever it was. And let me te- teach me about different principles of how I should live. And then you have the story of Jesus. And yeah, the story of Jesus that Jesus rescued me because Jesus died on the cross for me. And then now the rest of the scripture is kind of just telling me all the rules of how I need to live now. And the problem with that is that we're making it all about me and like all, we filter everything that we read as far as like what it's trying to teach me about me. And the thing about scripture, the thing about the word of God is that God did not give us the Bible because he wanted to give us this glorified instruction booklet. If the, if the Bible is really just meant to be an instruction booklet to tell you how to live, it would be a lot shorter. All right? It literally probably just, I mean, because he gave that in the Ten Commandments. He would just stop there. Here, you want to know how you live? need to live? Here you go. Good luck. All right? The Bible is not about just giving you a set of instructions on how you're supposed to live. The Bible, first and foremost, is meant to teach you who God is. Who he is, what he has done for you, what he desires. Teach about who he is, not you. So when we see the overall scope of scripture, we're supposed to see God as the main character because he is the main character of the Bible. We're supposed to read about God created the world, the heavens and the earth. Why? For his glory. God created mankind because he's a personal God. He wanted to create man because he wanted to be personal in a personal relationship with man. He wanted man to be, he created man in his image so that he, so that man would glorify him because it would be a reflection of him and who he, who he is. And when man messes up, the story shifts to God coming to the rescue, coming and trying to find a way to restore mankind because he loves us so much and he just comes and he just pursues us throughout the Old Testament. He's pursuing Abraham. He's pursuing Moses. He's pursuing David. He's trying to get his people to understand who he is. And when they keep coming up short time and time and time again, God sends his own son. God is the main character throughout scripture. So when you get into a passage of scripture, you got to ask yourself, what is this teaching me about God and who he is? Not what is it for me? So let's dive into this passage. If you look at verse 11, it says, therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope 
and without God in the world. So Paul's trying to set the scene for what he's, for what he's about to teach. And he's saying, remember that this is how it used to be. All right? And, and for, the, for the people that he's talking to, the original audience, they would have, they would have known this because a lot of them were Gentiles. Some of them were Jews. And they knew that what existed in place was a separation, basically, between Jews and Gentiles. They didn't mix. All right? Jews didn't associate with Gentiles. They didn't, they didn't want to have anything to do with Gentiles because they were unclean. Because the Jews had been personally selected by God. They were his people. They were given the law by Moses. They had all these rules that they were following, that they were trying to live by so that they would be a holy people, so that they would be able to be near to God. And the Gentiles were people that were without the law. Therefore, they were unclean. They didn't know who God was. There was literally a physical separation that existed, not just in the division of the lands, but even if you look at the temple, all right, the temple in Jerusalem, the holy temple of God, the temple where God was to dwell with his people. Okay. If you've ever seen a, a picture or diagram of the structure of the temple, um, it's, it's pretty awesome. But I mean, if you haven't, I encourage you to find one after this, this afternoon and actually look at how the temple was laid out. But basically, the temple was set up as a, as a series of different rooms, different chambers, all right? In the very smack dab in the middle, you had what was known as the Holy of Holies. This was like the place where God dwelt, that only like one man once a year would be able to enter. Like it was so holy that man couldn't live there because that's where God's presence actually physically dwelt. And then you, outside that room, you had the, what was called like this inner courtyard. Now this inner courtyard was segregated, meaning it was only for the Jews, if you were to come as an outsider because you heard about the Jewish faith and you were kind of curious, man, that's weird. They only believe in one God because you grew up believing in multiple gods. And you were to come to this, whole, this temple. And the temple is beautiful, by the way, back in this time. Like it was a beautiful construction. Herod had built it up. So it was this beautiful place. You come, you'd be in awe. You get through the first door and you go to this outer courtyard. And man, I want to see more. I want to go in. Sorry, you can't come because you're unclean. You're not allowed to come in here. There'd be like signs that said, like, if you enter here as a Gentile, you're subject to death because you're making our place unclean. So you had this outer courtyard that would have existed as basically just the place where the Gentiles, that was the only place they could enter. It was just this outer courtyard. And there was literally a wall that divided them. This wall is going to become important as we continue reading through this passage because it's going to be a uh, a, a thing that Paul references. So there's a physical division that, that existed between Jews and Gentiles. Then Paul goes on to, further to talk about it as he's t- describing this. He says, when he looks at verse 12, you see, he's like, you're alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and the strangers to the covenants of problem, to promise, having no hope and without God in the word, world. So what Paul's trying to explain here is not only was there a physical division between Jews and Gentiles, there was also a spiritual division. Because Gentiles didn't know who God was. Not that they were atheists, because like I said, there was plenty of other religions out there where they believed in something. 
believed in multiple gods or different things like that. But they didn't know who Yahweh was. They didn't know who the one true God was. They were never told. They didn't have the tradition of the covenants passed down to them. They weren't for them. And Paul describes them as having no hope because they didn't know who he was. They have no idea who God is, so they have no hope. No hope to be with him. Then he continues, verse 13. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So essentially what Paul is saying is that what Jesus Christ did for us is he came and he ended the division that existed. He got rid of it by his blood. See, beforehand, uh, I know most of you here, I think for the majority part I can say this, most of you aren't Jewish, okay? I'm pretty sure most of you, if not all of you, uh, maybe there's a few of you that have some Jewish heritage and you never shared that with me. Um, but for the most part, most of you probably would be characterized as Gentiles like myself. Okay, a Gentile is just a basically someone who's not a Jew. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. All right? Um, and as a Gentile, you would have been someone, like Paul saying, without any hope. And... The Jewish people were the ones that had the hope because they knew the covenants and they had the promise and they had all these things that they were banking on as far as the law. But now Jesus Christ comes in the picture. He comes, fulfills the law, lives a perfect life, dies on the cross, is resurrected, and now by his blood, Paul says, he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. When I talked about that wall that exists in the temple, this is a reference that Paul's making to this wall. Basically, this wall is gone. It doesn't exist anymore that we should be separated from each other. There's no more Gentile, no more Jew. There's no more like one's better than the other because one has the covenant and one doesn't. We all are now made one. We all are no longer divided in Jesus Christ. Is by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in, p- in peace of this two, of the two, so making peace. So no longer are we two different peoples, we are one people that Jesus Christ has unified, has made under him. In Christ, we are one, we are no longer divided people. This, by the way, is where you would get every principle that you ever think of as far as like how we are meant to be treating other people as far as how we're meant to be treating other believers. There's no longer, this is why like, you know, like principles like equality, principles like talking about racism, talking about segregation based on like, um, based on income level, poverty, whatever you might want to say, shouldn't exist in the church. 
because we are all made to be one. There's no longer any distinction. And this is probably one of the reasons why the Jews had a hard time wrestling with, with accepting Jesus is because Jesus basically came and said, you need me just as much as they do. There's no longer any more need of like, well, you guys are a little bit closer because they were a little bit closer to the Holy of Holies in the temple. They were a little bit closer to God than the Gentiles were. It doesn't matter. You're all falling short. It's like the idea if, you know, me and Daniel decide to go on a little competition, we're going to run and jump off this cliff as far as possible. And he out jumps me, like, I'm assuming he'd out jump me. You know, out jumps me by a good, like, you know, couple feet. But if we both come up 20 feet short of the other side, it doesn't matter. He doesn't win anything for out jumping me. We're both dead. That, that's, where, that's kind of what the idea of this is getting at. Like, for, for Jews or Gentiles, it doesn't matter anymore. You were both dead. That's what we were talking about last week. It doesn't, there's no distinction. You both need Jesus. Everyone needs Jesus. Just as much. Doesn't matter how you grew up. Doesn't matter if you grew up in the church or if you grew up in the streets. Doesn't matter that I have a degree in Bible and Will has a degree in education. We both need Jesus. Just kidding, education is a great degree to have. <laughs> we both need Jesus. We, everyone needs Jesus just as much, just as desperately, because we are all dead in our sins before Jesus Christ. We are no longer a divided people in Jesus Christ because we all need him just as much. And by needing him and by being saved by him, he makes us into one. He says, one new man in place of the two. So making peace. God's people are meant to be considered a peaceful people. And Jesus Christ we should have peace with one another. Because he's broken down all the hostility. He says he might reconcile us both to God in one, bo- in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Then he goes on, he says, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. I told you, when I, like, when I look at Scripture, I'm always challenging myself to continue to look at it through the lens of what is this teaching me about who God is? What is this teaching me about what he has done? What he, how, how he sees us? And one of the things I see in this passage is that in Christ, we are now near to God, not because we in our own selves decided, hey, I'm tired of being by myself, I'm tired of being alone. I, I want to get closer to God, so I'm going to get up on my feet. And I'm going to walk closer to Him. We are now near to God because God came and grabbed us. I, oh, you got! I, I have a pretty active imagination. I always had. Uh, I think that's. I mean, Mackenzie has a really active ma- imagination. I'd like to tell Megan it's because she gets it from me. Um, like I used to imagine all sorts of things as a kid. You know, and I don't know if this is a boy thing, and a lot of you guys, maybe some of you guys can relate, maybe some of you girls can relate. I don't pretend to know what goes on in girls' minds. Um, <laughs> like, 
I used to always, one of the things, you know, you always imagine is like, you know, I don't know, like you watch different movies, like you ever watch Braveheart, like when I was a teenager, you know, and you, you hear that speech from, you want to go charge in a battlefield, you want to go fight something, you know, you want to go, you start daydreaming about like what it'd be like to go rescue somebody, go fight for somebody. I think about what this actually looks like for God, and I can't help but feel like this is what God did for us. He saw us without any hope, and he came and rescued us. He came and fought for us. He came and gave up his own life for us to save us. There's a cool scene. Some of you know I love movies. I like to use movies now. Sorry, Carrie, it's not a Disney movie. Um, but uh, there's a cool scene in the, uh, we, we, were just, we were talking about, this is what I was talking about it with these guys, but this cool movie in the second Lord of the Rings movie, um, The Two Towers, um, at the, near the end of it, when like, They've been fighting all, all night, and, they're, and like the, 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 the whole idea of you know, Lord of the Rings is like basically the, the men trying to survive and being obliterated from Middle Earth um, by, the evil empire, by the evil armies. And this group of men of Rohan are, are like, have been beat back into the inner level of this, like, of this fortress because all night long they've been fighting and dying, and there's just over, they're outnumbered. And the king is kind of like, done for and just assumed he's he has no hope he's like we're gonna die he's like what can we do we can't we can't win we can't fight this it's, it's over and he decides you know he, he gets rallied to this idea of just going out one last charge in his mind it's, it's the end he's just he's already given up and they go out and they do this one last charge and at the very end when like you know it's getting near the end all of a sudden you know, Gandalf on a white horse. The imagery is meant to be there, by the way, J.R.R. Tolkien, totally. Gandalf on his white horse comes down with this big army and comes to the rescue of the, guy, of the man who had no hope. The idea of, you know, like, so that's kind of like where my head goes. Like I said, I have imagination, sorry. Um, this idea of, of, of me, myself, this idea of us as mankind with no hope fighting a battle we can't possibly win. And yet here comes Jesus Christ to the rescue, giving up his own life so that we might live, so that now we have a hope in him. In Christ, we are now near to God. We can now say that we are near to him. We, are now, we can now say that we have him dwelling in us. Verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, Remember I talked about that temple, the, the inner, in the innermost chamber was where God's presence was. And the only one who could go there was the chief priest. No one else had access to God. No one else could go there. Not only did Jesus Christ knock down the walls that separated Jews and Gentiles, he tore the curtain that separated us from God. Through his Holy Spirit, we now have access to God the Father. That's huge. Totally changes everything. what does it change this for? Then keep reading in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, 
but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we have this new status. We have Jesus Christ coming in, breaking down the walls that divide us, breaking down the walls that keep us from the Father. He's now made us one. So we can be one with the Father. We are one in Christ. We are now one with one another. We are now able to be, we now have access to God the Father. What does that mean for us? What is, what, what is, that, what is God accomplishing that for us then say? Well, Paul talks about what it means that we're being built into. He says, you are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. He's talking about a building. So like he starts describing us as this building. We are the household of God built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. He's talking about the church here. I find it fascinating that in the book of Ephesians, after Paul's getting done breaking down this, talking, teaching this theology about what Christ has done for us, what he accomplished for us, how he made us alive, how he made us no longer divided, and we're no longer separated from God, but we're now able to draw near to him. Christ has accomplished all this. And the first thing that Paul gets to as far as what that then means is he starts talking about what it means for us to now live together as a church. He doesn't say this is, he doesn't, he doesn't get, he doesn't start by talking about what it then means for you as a husband or what it then means for you as a father. That's to come. Those things are important. He's going to talk about that. We're going to get to that in the weeks to come in the book of Ephesians. But it starts with the church. It starts with something that is meant to be different. talks about this idea that in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. You know, I, I think I, I, can't, I can only imagine what it would have been like to have lived back then when the temple existed. But I mean, you can imagine like you're walking into the city, believing in the one true God, and you get to this temple, this building that is, is, is this beautiful structure and inside, you know, God actually physically dwells in this place. Like kind of the, just the, the, the awe and the anxiety you would have, the anxiousness you would have about being able to go there and see that place and how it would have just drew you in. As soon as you got into the city, you would have seen this beautiful, beautiful building. It would have caught your eye. You would have wanted to go there. You would have wanted to see it. You would have wanted to experience it. I don't think it's any mistake that Paul uses this, this, this word, holy temple, 
He doesn't call it just like a, 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 a you know, a, a synagogue. He doesn't call it a home. He doesn't call it a teaching place. He calls it a holy temple because the church is meant to have the same effect on the people in the community, on the people that we encounter. People, when they experience the church of God, when they encounter the church of God, are supposed to be struck in the same kind of awe that you would have been struck if you lived back then and you were to go into Jerusalem and see the holy temple. You're meant to be struck by the same idea of like, man, there's something different happening here. This is a place of worship. This is a place of of. It's a place of love. It's a place of peace. This is, a, this is meant to be a place where God is dwelling. You can feel him. He's there. If you remember back in verse 10, the way we ended last week's passage, uh, passage, it says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. This idea that we as a people were made to do this, do these good works in Christ Jesus. As a group, as a corporate body, as a group of believers, we are made and designed to be this representation of who God is here on earth. We are meant to point people to him. As the mountain church, what does that mean for us here in Des Moines? Are we actually excited and inspired? Is it one of the things that is a passion of our hearts to want to be a place, to want to be a people, that when people encounter us, man, they just know that they've encountered something different? Are we desiring to go out there and have people see this? Are we desiring to go, be together and grow together so that we can continue to be a better representation of him? Are we committed to that to one another? Do we really believe that we are no longer divided people, that we are one in Christ? That's way more significant than just saying like, like yeah, I'm gonna treat you fairly because we're, we're, we're equals. It's way more significant than just saying, I'm gonna treat you nice. I'm gonna treat you respectfully. It's saying, we are one. We are actually trying to be joined together in this. We are actually trying to, I'm trying to have your back. You're gonna have mine. We're gonna go together. We're gonna join arms and we're gonna do this. We're gonna accomplish this. It's gonna be a priority to us. I just get I, I I I get excited when I see things like this and when I think about how Christ is 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 calling us to be built and how He wants to build us into this, these things because this is like this is this is what we're this is why why we're this is why I know why Daniel wanted to start this church. He wanted Des Moines to encounter a church, have a church in Des Moines that when people encountered it, they walked away in awe. Not because of any, not because of us. Let me be clear of that. Not because of us. Because of what God was doing here. 
because of what God's doing with, in, in, in our lives, in the lives of the people that we're interacting with, in the lives of the people that we're serving, in the lives of the people that we're loving. The mountain church, like, you know, the idea of something that just strikes you. Something you can't not notice. Do we have a desire to be that church? That as people start to get more and more familiar with Des Moines, that as this church grows, that they can't miss us. They can't miss our presence. We're there. We're out there. We're going to be noticed. I was, I, was, I was telling Will, like, you know, going on with that Lord of the Rings theme. If you've seen the last movie, you know that city, Minas Tirith, that's built into the mountain? This giant city that you can't not see and notice, like, all the layers and layers upon buildings? Like, again, not that I think we are going to go move and build a big building. It's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about this idea that when people come to Des Moines, they're at the farmer's market or they're at the parks, or wherever it might be, that as this church grows, that it would continue to be that kind of beacon that you can't not see, you can't not notice. Do we desire that? And if we're desiring that, are we praying for it? Number one, because it says clearly here, in him you are also being built together, not you're building together, not, not the people are building together, but you're being built together, meaning God, the Holy Spirit is still the one doing the work here. Are we praying that he's building us together? Are we praying that he's being active? And are we actually surrendering our lives to him so that we are open to the way he wants to build us? Because if, 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 if we're gonna be sitting here and being stubborn individuals, then the Holy Spirit can whack on us all he wants we're not going to be built into anything but what we want to be built. So are we surrendering to him individually, corporately? And are we praying that he would build us into what he wants us to be? And then are we committing our lives to one another? Living, living together, holding each other accountable, praying for one another? making each other a priority? And finally, are we sending each other out? Are we pushing one another to be uncomfortable? And if we're going to go do something uncomfortable, are we asking people to come with us? Are we looking to try to share those things? Do it together. There's nothing that I see in here that says that you have to do this alone. This doesn't mean that we're going to be up here preaching this. Now I expect you to go out and do this alone. Go, Carrie, right now. All right, all on your own. Go take care of it. All right? Paul didn't even go alone. He had people with him. All right? We, we do this. We get sent out together. We join together. I don't know about you guys, but this idea 
of being one in Christ, like I said, one should definitely challenge us because, like I said, it definitely does go against with what how culture shapes us. Okay, culture shaping us to be an individualistic society, being all about us, being all about me, and yet in Christ we're saying it's all about us, us together, in Him, in Christ alone. And then also this idea of being one in Christ should challenge us, should push us to wanting to grow together and wanting us to actually be that representation of him that we were designed to be. And we should be asking, constantly asking ourselves, what is holding us back? What are the things that we need to be surrendering? And then asking one another for helping that, asking one another for, you know, um, for people to keep you accountable, people to hold you to hold you to the things that you need to be given up, keeping you keeping us accountable to. Are we looking for areas of opportunity to continue to reflect Him? Like well, I said, it starts in prayer. And that's what we're going to do right now. Is we're going to transition to a time of prayer, and I really hope as you guys go from here this week, that you be in prayer for our church. I believe that God wants to create the Mount Church into something that has significant impact in this community in Des Moines because I believe God wants to have significant impact in Des Moines. I believe wholeheartedly that God loves the people in Des Moines and that he, when he sent his son, Jesus Christ, he came to fight for them just as much as he came to fight for you. I need Jesus. They need Jesus. So join me in praying for them this week, praying for our church, that our church would be that beacon in Des Moines, that we would be open to the Holy Spirit's building us into that. Let's pray. Father God, I, we come before you, Lord, and we just ask, Father, that your Holy Spirit would be present in our lives. Father, I pray for this church. I pray for the ways that you have been building us together these last couple of years as we've launched, as we've started to form this identity of this mountain church, Lord. I pray that you would continue to be the one building this church Father, I pray that you would break us of any selfishness, of any pride, of any um, stubbornness, Lord, that would keep us from surrendering to you, that would keep us surrendering to your will. As you seek, us, as you seek to build us into the temple where you will dwell here in Des Moines. Father, I pray is that people, as people begin to interact with us more and more, as we start being more and more exposed to the people of this community, Lord, whether it be in a few weeks on Easter, whether it be in our communities this summer, wherever it might be, Lord, 
that they would be struck by your presence. They would see you here in our lives, in our conversations, in our love. Father, we thank you so much for sending your son, Jesus Christ. That you came to our rescue, Lord, that you came and saw us from our far off place and brought us near to you. Lord, I pray that we would be rooted in that, that we would understand what it is now that you are calling us to be as your people, as your holy temple. Pray this all in your son's holy name. Amen.